Amen. For our preaching this evening, we'll look at 1 John chapter 1 and verses 8, 9, and 10. 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10. John writes, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. These three verses for our consideration this evening. This epistle has done much to both awaken those who stood in their deception, ignorant of their spiritual state and their need for Christ, making them to see that they stood in such need of salvation as John makes plain. But it's also been useful to confirm and encourage the Lord's people in giving these various marks of grace and salvation. And so we see two in this particular chapter, one mentioned when in verse 6, he says negatively, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So in other words, if we're walking in sin, if our life is committed to that, whatever our profession is, we are without grace. However, positively, verse 7 If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. What a blessedness that is to hear of all of our sin being cleansed. But in verses 8-10, through perhaps surprisingly, John takes up what had developed, it seems, as an error in in some thoughts. Namely, that we no longer have sin. And John identifies this when he says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. He says it again in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, notice the strength of this statement, we make him, that is, we make God, a liar. As you look at these verses, you'll notice that he's addressing something by way of challenge. He's saying, it's possible for someone to say we have no sin and think themselves a Christian, perhaps even to think themselves to arrived at a, such a state of advanced maturity that they are marked out as an exemplary Christian. But John says, to say that you're without sin and to have no sin is to deceive yourself. He says so strongly that it is then indicative that the truth is not in us. This is stated in verse 8. It's again stated with stronger words as noted verse 10. But in between is this great encouragement to the one who says, I'm not one who says I have no sin. I'm quite aware of my sin. He says if we confess our sins, he that is God is faithful and just, that is righteous, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's parallel to what he says in verse 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son, cleanses us from all sin, from all missing of the mark, which is the essence of sin, here in verse 9, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all missing of that standard of what is demanded for righteousness. You notice he's commending confession. Now, we realize that there are those who make much of confession to a minister or to a priest, and we would deplore that quite clearly. For scripturally, we see the emphasis, as we read earlier in Psalm 32, as we see in Psalm 51 as well, that confession preeminently is to be to God. Now, in saying that, we do not deny the fact, as elsewhere stated, that we ought to confess our sins one to another, particularly when our sins are against one another. But there are occasions where it may be beneficial for us to pull a brother aside and to say, I'm struggling with this, 
I'm asking for uh, your prayers. I need to confide in you that I've sinned in this area. Would you please pray for me? But preeminently confession has to do with our acknowledging unto God what he says about our sins. Throughout, John is showing that a gracious soul, what we would call a saved soul, a believing person, confesses his sin to God. In other words, it's a mark of grace when we find the practice of confessing our sins unto God, which, as John is also saying, it's a sign of either no grace or lack or less grace when it is that we hesitate to confess our sins to God. You can see this illustrated, can't you, in the life of David. Certainly David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, we don't deny that he wasn't a believer. He had, as we sometimes say, backslidden. He had grown cold spiritually and was engaged in two most heinous second-table sins, adultery and murder. And here he was seeking to cover his sin. None of us would look at David in that moment and say, there is the mark of a mature man. But it is when Nathan the prophet comes and God joins strength with the reproof that David humbles himself and in the Lord's gracious ordering of things gives us one of the richest confessions of sin ever penned and in the Lord's great wisdom placed in the midst of the psalm book that his people, we, should ever have access to the owning of our sins before God. And we look at David then and we say, there is a gracious man. He confessed his sin. He didn't shave off the corners or skip certain things. There's a sense in which we can get a little window into the spiritual maturity of men and women with reference to their confessing unto God and the way they interact one with another. What do we mean? Well, you know, they get caught doing something or their conscience gets at them and what do they do? Well, you know, I'm sorry that I made you feel that way. And you get a little window into what their prayer is like to God. They won't own their sin to a person who is their equal, a person who is a fellow sinner. How much less are they going their sin unto a holy God. You see, brethren, as we start to enter into this, there is a massive spiritual hindrance to confessing sin as we do not have, if we do not have, clear grounds as to why we confess our sins. We don't confess sin in order to somehow merit from God something. We don't confess our sins somehow to vindicate ourselves and just sort of scoot past a difficult relationship. Well, see, we confess sins because we stand as guilty before God and in need of the impediment being removed, not strictly meritoriously by our our confession, as if confession somehow of itself washes the sin away. But as we confess our sins, what we do implicitly is to say, there's no hope for me and forgiveness, except you pardon my sins. Notice with this language, verse 9, and cleanse me. I need you to cleanse me, which is earlier stated as cleansing us by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is of immense help for us as we zero in on particular matters regarding our own sin. If we don't see this, will actually hesitate to own before the Lord in all of its fullness the acknowledgement of our sin. Because inwardly, our pride will not only rise up, but will also be filled with doubts as to what God might or might not do with us. So as we think of this, particularly as we're examining ourselves to one degree or another and discovering sins, let's consider how this confession of sin is both a sign of grace as well as a means of grace. Firstly, then, the meaning of confessing our sins. Secondly, the cause of confessing our sins. And lastly, cultivating the confessing of our sins. Firstly, then, the meaning of confessing our sins. What does it mean to confess our sins? Well, you'll see the word appears uh, 
in the text when in verse 9 it says, if we confess our sins. In verse 8, the opposite of it is presented when it says, if we say we have no sin. That's the opposite of confession, that we aren't saying that we have it. Or again in verse 10, if we say that we've not sinned, that's the opposite of confession. The Greek word is quite simple. It's to say the thing. And so the word is a compound word in the Greek, and it has the idea of speaking, but speaking the same thing. Now, in context, and with reference to confessing our sins, what it has to mean before us is that it means to say the same thing about our sins as God says about our sins. That, brethren, is a high standard. To say the same thing about our sins as God says immediately removes certain excuses or ideas that it's not that big of a deal. Right? You hear this when you seek to share the gospel with certain individuals, and they'll say, well, yeah, I've done something. If you want to call it sin, that's fine, I suppose. But it's really not that bad, right? That's not confessing sin. Think of it this way. You can think about the measure of sin and its object, what we, whom we sin against. We sin against God. God's not little. And so sin against him isn't little. We can think about somehow thinking through our sins with reference to the consequence of sin, damnation, damnation isn't little, sin isn't little. Well, in order to confess the same about our sins as God thinks of it, we have to think in terms of a few items. If we're going to say the same thing as God does, we have to have the right definition of our sin. How do we define our sin? We can't listen to the world because the world is backwards on this. Right now, we're in the midst of sort of a political season. There's an ad that's going around of this woman who's saying, I don't think what happens here in the civil offices should affect what takes place in, the, in here, the doctor's surgical room. And her point is, I don't think politics should ban abortion. Think of that for a moment. This ad is actually saying it's wrong for people to try and stand against murdering children. And all of the rhetoric, which you're well familiar with, is quite clear. But it's just a, a contemporary insight into how the world defines sin. Here is a woman supported by tremendous millions of dollars, perhaps, and is appealing to who knows how many people fundamentally to say this, I want to be elected so that I can protect your right, as they would say, to murder an unborn child. That's just a little window into how the world defines sin. What's sin in the world's mind? This idea that you should be telling me, commanding me to protect a child in my world. You can get this picture when you look at the world and how they define what's right, what's good, what's beautiful, what's wrong, what's unacceptable, what is, of course, ugly in the world's eyes. And so if we're going to say the same thing as God, in one sense we have to shut our ears to what the world is saying. But in order to say the right thing, we actually have to define it according to the way God defines it. Now John actually helps us with this in a number of ways. He actually implicitly says, Sin is unrighteousness. Notice verse 9 that God is just to, faithful and just to forgive us our sins, which he then in parallel calls unrighteousness, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, he says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of of the law. Now, what this is getting at is it's showing us where the definition of sin is found. It's found in what God tells us. God identifies what's righteous, what's unrighteous, and He's the standard. 
It's not cultural pulse. It's not knowing the times. It's not sort of feeling it out in my mind. It's not even, and this is an important aspect that needs to be regained in the church, our consciences don't define sin. Our consciences can be warped, they can be misinformed, they can be wrong. This is why the scripture speaks of a weak conscience and a strong conscience, a seared conscience, a conscience that's alive. That which defines sin and righteousness is God's word. Now, specifically, John identifies the law, which helps us to make concrete the specifics of sin. If we want to know what sin is, we look to God's written word. Particularly, we look to his law. So, if we're going to say the same thing about sin as God does, we have to look to his law to see what sin is, the degrees of it, the wickedness of it, the display of it, and so on. But we also, if we're to say the same thing as God does about sin, we have to say the same thing regarding its object. Against whom do we sin? Now, it's right, of course, to admit that we do sin against others, right? Christ actually says, if your brother sins against you. So there's a way in which we sin against one another. And yet, as already indicated in Psalm 51, which gives us a very helpful portrait of confession, you can see a sinner who is guilty both of adultery and of murder. Psalm 51, verse 4, David says, Against thee and thee only have I sinned. What's he getting at? Is he denying that there's any um, wickedness toward Bathsheba or toward uh, Bathsheba's now murdered husband? No. But he's saying, fundamentally, that which I've done against them, that which I've done against my calling as a king to rule in righteousness and thus against the people, that which I've done against my own household and that I've brought now all sorts of judgment upon me, ultimately is against you. Now, here's the point in this first idea. The meaning of confession is to see sin as God defines it and to see sin as against God. It helps us, in one sense, to simplify things. It helps us in the whole flurry of our mind going crazy to say, well, what is sin? Our catechism helpfully summarizes sin as any want or lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. It's not just some like well-intended definition that's gathered from men's minds. It's summarizing the Scriptures. Sin is the transgression of the law. The law concretely defines it for us. Now, there are, there's more nuance, of course, as Christ makes plain in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just the outward act, it's the inward desire, it's not just the outward speech, it's the inward thought. All of these things are true. But it is identified by its transgression of or its lack of conformity to the standard which God has given. Therefore, it is sin preeminently against God. So if we're going to say the same thing about our sin, we have to be informed by that standard. We actually will struggle to confess our sin if we're ignorant of God's law. This is, of course, understandable in our own culture where a large percentage of professing Christians can't so much as list the Ten Commandments. Much less can they recite them, and then much less can they meditate upon them. Where there's an ignorance of God's law, there will necessarily be a lesser view and a less clear view of what sin is. And there will be less sense of it being against God, because the law is not the law of Moses. It's not Moses' law. It's not the law of men. It's not man's law. It's the revelation of God's will. And so to violate His law is to sin against Him, to sin against God. And notice, just as an aside, that what John says in 1 John 3, verse 4, is universal. Whenever there's sin committed, they are necessarily transgressing the law. In other words, for the people who contend, well, the law of God's outdated, or the law of God 
no longer relevant for the Christian, there then is no longer sin. There's nothing that can define it. The law is clear in identifying and thus condemning what sin is. Well, coming back now, to say the same thing as God says, but also with confession, notice a very important part, that it means to own the sin as our own. This is perhaps where even the most well-studied come face to face with the struggle. Do you see it as John says in verse 9, if we confess our sins? It's impressive our ability to identify, whether real or imagined, others' sins. What's equally impressive, if not more so, is our ability to ignore our own. Here, John is putting first and foremost this attention upon our confessing our sins. And to do that, if sin is the transgression of the law, not mistakes, if sin is the transgression of the law, not just a reaction, then it is that we come before God and we say, this is my wickedness. I have sinned against you. But how many times is it the case, brothers and sisters, that we have a ready excuse? Well, the reason I did this to my wife, the reason I spoke this harshly to my children, the reason I've sort of put my hand up in the face of my husband, the reason that I've been unkind to my brothers and sisters, the reason I've done this, that, or the other thing is because of what he did, she did, they did, they don't do, he doesn't do, she doesn't do. There's a ready answer that is meant to, in some way, sort of carry the conviction away from us and put it elsewhere. But fundamentally, what that evades is the owning of sin as our own. It's actually saying, well, it's your fault. It's not so much mine. Did you do this? Well, the that you made for me. Did you do this? Well, the serpent, right? There's this blame shifting that goes on. And it's implicit, it's an interesting, when one is confronted by God for their sin. Adam, well, Eve. Eve, the serpent. Brethren, this is an ancient tactic of a soul seeking to evade his culpability and his guilt. But the mark of grace is that we come and we say, this is my doing. I've sinned. Now, Someone might say, well, does that mean that there's no sin in the other party? Not at all. There may be immense sin. There may be more sin in the other party. But confessing is not confessing by pointing out the others. Confessing before God is coming and saying, here's what your law demanded I do, and I have not done it. Here's what your law forbid me to do, and I went and did it. It's my fault. I've sinned. This is what confession means. We say the same thing of our sins as God says, and we own that sin as our fault. Brethren, this will transform something if it takes root in our lives. We will cease using the language of mistake and we will start using the language of sin. We will stop saying, well, I'm sorry, and we'll start saying, I'm guilty. Those are big differences. It doesn't mean we aren't sorry for our sin. It doesn't mean there's not a place to acknowledge that sorrow and grief. But it does mean if our confession thus far has only remained in the realm of sorrow, we actually stand no different than Judas Iscariot, who out of grief took the money back, threw it in, and then, not confessing his sin, went out and destroyed himself. Confessing our sin certainly will bring grief to us as we see in David. But the language of confession will express what God says about it and thus about us when we have sinned. Now, let's move secondly to consider the cause of confession. And surprisingly, what we see here 
is, as John emphasizes, the primary cause is God's grace. This is where some in the modern church can't make sense of the Bible's balance. And so, likewise, do some ignore the law, and others so build up the laws to make that the cause of everything. But notice how John presents this. He says in verse 8, that if we don't confess, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And notice this language, the truth is not in us. Verse 10, similarly, if we say that we've not sinned, that is, if we don't confess our sins, we make him a liar, God a liar, and his word is not in us. His truth and his word, they're not in us. Well, what's being said there? The grace that is there conveyed by the truth The Word, as well, is not inhabiting us. This language of in us is more than just an intellectual awareness. It's a vital, life-giving grace that is planted by the Spirit. And so it's the outworking of fellowship with God. It's amazing, isn't it? Verse 7, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. It's in the context of communing with Christ that we confess our sins. It's in the context of a vital relationship with the Savior that we're brought to confess our sins. Which means, by the way, that we're weak in confessing our sins, we're actually weak in communing with Christ. If we are without the confessing of our sins, we are actually without the communing with Christ. And so the cause of confession is God's grace. God, in the one that He brings to confess sin, is one in whom He has planted the power of His truth. He's planted the power of His Word. You see this in another way when Paul speaks to the Thessalonians, writes to the Thessalonians, and he says, I know your election. Why? Because when the Word came, when it was preached to you, it didn't come in Word only, but it came in power and in the Spirit. And so you turn from idols to serve the true and living God. What's he getting at? It wasn't just you know, the verbs and nouns coming to you. It was the Spirit working mightily, savingly, graciously that drew you to repent. Well, the same is true with reference to confession. Where there is confession of sin, in the way the Scriptures hold it forth, there is the previous work of God's grace in the life of the individual, bringing them to have their eyes open to what God says about these things, and thus to own them before Him. This this preposition in, in us, is speaking of the inhabiting of His truth in us. The inhabiting of His Word in us. Where that is in us, it will bring us to confess when we have sinned against Him. There's more to this, but it's important to see that if we're to confess our sins, we have need of God's grace. It's also important to see that when we have loved ones, or strangers for that matter, who are hardened in their sins, They do need to be informed because God works by means. But with the means, they require God's grace. Brethren, we can put it perhaps in another way as well for two situations. When I am resisting confessing my sin, it's actually testifying about something in my relationship with Christ. It's testifying at best that my relationship with Christ is weak when I am going to God to confess my sins, it testifies that His living in me is vital and powerful and bringing me to own my sin by His grace before Him. So God's grace in us brings us to confess. Certainly, as we've already noted, God's law is used to inform us. All of us know this experience 
we grow as a Christian, we start studying God's Word more, and we start to pick up on certain things that we once weren't paying attention to. Oh, you know what? The way I speak is important. And so we start to pay attention to that, and we get convicted over it, right? So perhaps we were careless in our speech before, and we study God's Word, and particular commandments come that says to us that we're to speak that which edifies, right? There's the standard. We are to speak such words as minister grace to the hearer. And so it's not just don't say profane things. It actually puts forth a positive standard that says, when you speak, your tongue is to minister grace to the hearer. And oh, brethren, we see that, and we for a split second reflect upon ourselves, and we say, how many times, though I may be free by God's grace, of speaking profanity, corruption, yet how many times am I so beneath the ministering of grace to the hearer? And what happens? Well, the Lord uses His law, His commandments, to convict us. And so, He wields the law graciously to our heart to show us where we have either transgressed or failed to conform. But you'll also notice in verse 9 that there is a foundational trust that leads to confession. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive. When you confess your sins, it displays trust in God. When you don't confess your sins, it displays the lack of trust in God. The more one trusts God, the more one will disclose to God of his own sins. Isn't this true in human relationships? We don't open ourselves up to people we don't know very much about. And if we're going to share something that's difficult, although the use of social media has challenged this, the real relating with one another will not take place unless we trust that person. So it's one thing for someone to talk about, oh, transparency and brokenness as they put it all across the impersonal social media outlets today. But for someone to open themselves with a real relationship with somebody, face-to-face demands that they trust them. The same is true when we open our souls to When we don't confess our sins, there may be a lot of things at work, but one thing among others is that it's showing that we actually have little view of God's grace. We have a small view that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It's an astounding thing. Sometimes we think that, well, there's just one cause of something, when in reality there's such a network of things at work So we say, well, the reason he doesn't confess is because he's possessed with ignorance. Well, that may be a reason, as we've seen. The reason he doesn't confess is because this, that, or the other. Those may be reasons, but one reason is they have a little view of what God will do with it. They have a small view of what God will do for them as they confess. You think about what David says in Psalm 32. Blessed is the man, right, whose sin is forgiven, whose transgression is covered, and so forth, and the one who confesses his sin. When we get that in our minds, God forgives us as we confess. The blood of Christ is applied to us. We actually start to see the massive benefit of owning and disclosing to God even the most depraved thoughts in our minds and hearts, the speech, the actions, the desires, all of these things, when we trust that God is gracious. Isn't it the case that Satan in his temptations challenges this? Well, if you confess your sin to God, what's he going to do about that? As if God doesn't already know about our sin in the first place. Well, if you acknowledge that before God, well... Get ready for what's coming. But here, John presents to us a true 
and thus a different view than what Satan and our flesh is so often willing to believe. If we confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Perhaps we can understand the idea of faithful. It may be difficult for us at first to understand the idea of just. How is God just to forgive sins? Well, it's not because he, as it were, says, well, you've paid up with your confession. I'm going to pay you back with forgiveness. Faithful and just are actually intimately connected. And so you think about how is it the case that he's faithful to forgive us our sins? Well, because he's promised to forgive us our sins. Because he set forth Christ to procure the forgiveness of our sins. And so in that, you can start to see how he's just to forgive us our sins. How is he just? Well, because we appeal to him not only in confessing our sins, but in confessing our need for the Savior, Jesus Christ, appealing to him, Oh God, look at my defilement. Look at my transgression. I need the blood of Christ to cleanse me. And hasn't God so clearly testified to us that he is one that forgives our sins for Jesus' sake? The one who believes upon Jesus Christ is forgiven? The one who trusts in Jesus Christ is pardoned? This is John's point. When we come to God disowning any merit in ourselves, any righteousness in ourselves, and owning our own unrighteousness and confessing it to God and saying, for Jesus' sake, even Jesus, whose blood cleanseth us from all sin, for His sake forgive me. It takes, as it were, all of our trust out of ourselves and places it solitarily, solely, upon God in Christ. You see, confession, graciously considered, is the removal of hope from ourselves and the placing of hope upon Christ. Because when we are confessing sin, we're holding on to something within us that makes us want to think we've got something still. We've got something to cleave on to. We've got something to settle our feet upon, to put the weight of our soul on. But when we come as noted and we acknowledge what sin is, it's against God and all of these things, that we're guilty, and we say, I can't stand before God with this. This is worthy of damnation. And we come to God and say, look what I deserve. But I confess it and I take hold of Christ and I pray for His sake, forgive me. Well, God then owns His Word. And He's faithful and righteous to do what He's promised to do. Let me ask you a question for a moment to which I hope I know the answer. Do you wish to know more the love and riches of Christ? If a Christian, implicitly, you already have your answer. Of course I do. Well, here's something that's overlooked in many of our lives. The confessing of our sins. The going to God, searching out, examining ourselves, assessing our things. Because what we make it, self-examination, is something like a Protestant meritorious work. It's just difficult. It's heavy. It's hard. And it is all of those things. But what happens is we implicitly turn it into something that we're doing to earn. When in fact, confessing our sins, having examined ourselves, is the exact opposite. We're discovering where the problem is and we're owning it, thus to rely solely upon Christ. And so when we examine ourselves, we have all these temptations. And it's no wonder Satan doesn't want you to grow closer to Christ. Satan doesn't want you to see more beauty in Christ. Satan doesn't want you to have more peace that is from Christ. Satan doesn't want you to know more blessedness by Christ. And so he necessarily will put hindrances in your experience to the very means that would lead you to know more of Christ. So isn't it amazing we set apart a day of personal humiliation, self-examination, and instantly we're tired. Our mind can't think on anything here, there, everywhere else. We can't so much as sustain five minutes thought upon the Word of God. And so we're brought to pray, Lord, help, sustain me. Keep my eyes open. Help me to think on that. He supplies it. We come to God's law and we deal superficially with it. Why is that? Because Satan is throwing his worst at us 
to keep us not from conviction, you understand, but from confession and communion with Christ. And so all of these things that come to us, we have to start to see. It's seeking to prevent us from a closer and more intimate communion with Christ. The one who is brought to confess his sins, to own them as his own, and evades all of the traps of the world, evades all of the traps of the flesh, and comes before God and says, I know that I would like to stand here and say it's not really my fault. But I see your law says otherwise. It is my fault. I'd love to stand here and say, well, if my wife did this, or my husband did that, or if my pastor were this, or my elder were that, or if the church did this, or the world did that, or my boss did this, or my child did that, I could say all of these things, but in the end, what's that doing? It's actually holding on to some view of self-righteousness. And what it does is it keeps us from knowing the great and overwhelming benefit of having our full identity in Christ alone. It keeps us from gaining our blessedness from Christ because it tries to retain sense of ourself before God. This doesn't mean we make up things to confess. Believe me, we don't have to make up anything. We simply have to search out by the light of God's Word these things. And as we do, we come with the assurance, as God says, that He will forgive us our sins. And oh, the blessedness He will cleanse. That is, He'll wash us. Not from most, not even the most heinous, but all unrighteousness. Every aspect. Every speck. He'll cleanse us. What does that do? It endears us to Him. It cultivates love to Him. It gives us gladness in Him. It's no wonder that at the end of Psalm 32, there's an exhortation to rejoice and to praise God. He's confessed his sin. He's found relief and rejoicing in God. He knows comfort. He's teaching others and so on. And now he's exhorting all to rejoice in God. That's the natural outworking of gracious confession. Finally, the cultivating of confession. What do we need to cultivate and how do we cultivate it? Well, we have to cultivate a couple of things, among others. One is knowledge. We have to cultivate a right knowledge of God's law. We have to cultivate a right knowledge of God's holiness. We have to cultivate a right knowledge of God's grace. And brethren, the preeminent way that we do that is by an attentive study of God's Word. We meditate. We'll think more on this in just a moment, but there has to be material that our minds, and by God's grace, the whole of our souls will take in. In other words, we have to be instructed. So this may mean that we start by learning the two great commandments. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thy neighbor as thyself. Where we get more concrete, we go through the Ten Commandments. That's teaching us both about God and about His commandments. We take up passages like Isaiah 6 and we see God's holiness we think about what is being taught by the most holy place that never did one enter except the high priest with blood. This is our God. We think about how Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. It tells us about Him. We have to cultivate these things. But we also must cultivate a knowledge of His grace, which is emphasized in verse 9 that we must know that He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If either of these is lacking, the knowledge of God's law, the knowledge of God's holiness, the knowledge of God's grace, you can be sure that your confessing will be stunted. Because either you won't know what to confess as you should, or you'll think it's not that big of a deal because God's not as holy as He is, or you'll think, well... Once I confess, what's going to fall upon my head? 
So we have to cultivate true knowledge. But secondly, we have to cultivate a tenderness of conscience. This is something that is so different than the world. The world cultivates pride. The world cultivates brashness. The world tells men to be bold and daring and tells women to be like men. The Word calls us to be humble before God. To have our consciences made supple, that they would be informed by God's law. All of us have had scars upon our conscience because of our missteps. We know, don't you know those times when you knew before you started saying the Word, you ought not to have said it. You knew before you started walking down that way, you ought not to have gone that way. And yet what happens is you harden your heart against those prevenient convictions and thus your conscience gets harder. We need to cultivate a tenderizing of that to making it tender in the presence of God which comes by prayer, which comes by seeking God's grace and by learning His Word. So these are two things we need to cultivate, knowledge and tenderness. But how do we do it? Well, obviously, the only way it will ever come to pass is as God grants it. So we must pray. God, it's interesting, isn't it, to cultivate confession, we actually have to confess. We come to God and say, I don't even confess my sins like I should confess. Father, I've discovered some sins. Someone's told me about a sin. I've seen it in Your Word. My conscience tells me But I'm content to go the whole day without so much as acknowledging it before you. Bury it. I say, well, I shouldn't have done that. I say, well, I'll deal with that better in the future. But what I don't do is stop and say, God, what I've just done is I've sinned against you. And I'm worthy of judgment in this in myself. But I ask for Jesus' sake, forgive me. So we have to pray that God would give it. And we prayerfully meditate upon His Word in those areas that we've talked about. His law, we set aside time, we meditate upon it. Brethren, this will not come without a concerted and deliberate effort, as the Lord blesses, of a setting aside time and focused meditation taking in what God is saying. We meditate. And likewise, to cultivate, we must learn to turn the eye from and with God's law unto our lives, saying, I will not permit my judgment to go elsewhere. I'm not going to think, yeah, but what about her? Yeah, but what about him? Because this isn't others examining. This is self-examining. And so we turn it upon ourselves. We take the light of God's Word and we say, now search me. I see what the light shines upon. I see what the light is, but now search me and know me. But as we cultivate it, we do so ever realizing that we are seeking not some ruining of our souls, but an unburdening of our guilt to God in Christ that we may know Him more fully. Well, as we close, here is help for our preparation that remains. There are many things to examine any time, and none of us can examine everything. But one thing that we can examine perhaps this week is to ask the question regarding our own confessing of sin. We can start with asking, do I? When was the last time that I, in more than just sort of a uh, surface level way confessed my sin to God? When did I go before God and say, Lord, against Thee, Thee only, have I sinned? So we can ask, do I? Lord willing, if, certainly if you're a Christian, you have. But we can ask further, how regularly do I? You know, sometimes we think, well, I did that you know, last communion season. Or I did that last month. Or did that last week? It ought to be more than just a customary filler in prayer to acknowledge that each of us sins daily. Well, to articulate what those sins are, we have to know what sin is. 
And so, if we're regularly going to confess, we have to regularly take in the Word of God. Another question we can ask regarding our confession is, how easily am I brought to confess? Am I like the mule that has to have the bit and bright put on and pulled with force? Or am I rather unlike the mule, made gracious by the Lord to be brought forth in my confessing of sin? Another thing to ask, how hopefully do I confess my sin? Oh, there are tears, doubtlessly of shame, when we're brought to confess. But are there not as well tears of comfort in knowing that as we confess, He's actually forgiving our sins by the blood of Christ. And so we are kept then from turning it into something that purchases and we keep it as that which lays hold of Christ. Here is, of course, encouragement to the convicted conscience. We often ask ourselves, why and what am I now to do? And God's Word comes to us. Here's what you're to do. You're to take all of the ugliness that you're aware of. You're to take all of the transgression you're aware of. All of what you've not done when you're aware of. And you're to own it as such before me and confessing that you stand only by the blood and righteousness of Christ. That's massive for our souls. Because instead of us trying to find a way that we can navigate coming out all right, We actually own it all as a heap of mess, a heap of wickedness, and we come freshly to Christ and say, you're my only hope. And brethren, Christ being our only hope is the only hope for any and the only hope for us. Brethren, here is a cause of thanksgiving that God has brought us in a way of grace to see that our only hope is in Christ Jesus our Savior. To confess, yes, our sins in confessing Christ as our Savior. That by Him alone we stand before God forgiven, cleansed, and at peace. Brethren, if this is of any help to us, think of the help it is to come to the Lord's table with this on our mind. What do we do essentially when we take the bread and the wine? We're essentially saying this, what you suffered, I deserve. Is that not confession? I deserve that judgment. But I'm taking you as mine. I take you and I ask you, forgive me, cleanse me, and be my salvation. Would you stand with me for prayer?